Paracast, with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Biedley. David, I hate to tell you this, you're going to have to start packing your bags. Really? Again? Well, yeah, you know how that happens. It seems here there's a story out there saying that the Andromeda Galaxy might snatch our solar system from the Milky Way Galaxy. Really? Mm. They're repossessing us? That's right. Maybe the Milky Way Galaxy didn't pay their rent on time. Yeah, the lease is up. The lease is up and they're coming to get us. But now, wait a minute. Somebody better call David Sarita. Because he says he can get to Andromeda in no time. It looks like Andromeda is coming to us. Oh, it is. How does he get there in no time? What is his scheme? Uh, he's not using a, a New York City cab, that's for sure. Well, <laughs> yeah, I know. Some of those cabs will just cross traffic beyond belief. They'll cross town in minutes where it would take you hours because they know how to weave in and out. Maybe that's it, too, if you have a motorcycle. Maybe he's going to fly to Andromeda in a motorcycle. Oh, God. It's got to be a Harley, then. It can't be a rice grinder. Got to be an American bike. No, I, it's it's just all silly. I don't know. He's drinking too much Drano. Who knows? Well, okay. Actually, don't pack your bag so quickly. This won't happen for a few billion years. Oh, my God. So I have time to make popcorn, is what you're saying. Or chocolate. Or ch- I could make chocolate popcorn. I could reinvent chocolate in three billion years. You I ha- could come you up have with something about chocolate, because when what? we talk about different things, you always add... Well, do they have chocolate there? Right. That's the relevant question of the age, I think. Look, look, man, this is really simple. There are two things in life, music and chocolate. Oh, and love. Music, chocolate, and love. Preferably all three at once. Are you listening, Susie? All three at once. Music, chocolate, and love. What more do you need out of life? Do you have any prioritizing there? Or is it all the same priority to you? Music, chocolate, and love. All made out of molecules, man. It's all the same stuff. Okay. Okay. No quantum physics here. No, you don't need quantum physics for this. You got music, you got chocolate, you got love. What more? What quantum? Whatever. You don't need. You don't need quantum foam. You don't need quantum physics. You don't need quantum hard drives. So these days, the Beatles would not, if they were here today, if all of them were alive today, they wouldn't do a song called All You Need Is Quantum Physics. Well, you know what? John Lennon would probably be into that, but Paul McCartney would, you know, mess it up. Did you hear any of the tracks from that new album he has coming out? No, I heard just one for about 30 seconds worth. Yeah. That was about it. Right. That's, yeah, up on iTunes. I guess they're going to have all McCartney's new stuff. But this new album is uh, its kind of like McCartney doing Phil Collins doing uh, Frankie Valley. I don't know. It's just terrible. It's bad. It's really Paul bad. McCartney basically doing all sorts of sounds and yeah. homogenizing them and pasteurizing them and coming out with something that, oh, forget it. Well, the, the two good Beatles are gone, man. Lennon, Harrison. So if we're going in the order of the quality of musical innovation... So as Lennon went first, Harrison went next, I guess McCartney's going to go next, and then it's going to be Ringo. Okay, so we'll have Ringo next. I shouldn't be laughing at this, because I love the Beatles, but um, Paul McCartney, uh, he was never my favorite Beatle, and it's it's sad to hear this new stuff, because I, when I saw that, that iTunes was going to have the album, and at first I thought, okay, maybe this will be a good deal, because they've got an exclusive music video, and why are we talking about this on the Paracast? What is this? I have that question in mind. What does Paul McCartney have to do with weird New Jersey? Now, I understand New Jersey is weird because I used to live there. Me too. I grew up there. Okay, so two weird people. But we no longer live in New Jersey, so New Jersey is not as weird, is it? Well, I live right near New Jersey, actually. I'm not far from it, and I actually love to go and visit it because it is weird. Okay. It has good diners. 
Yeah, Somerset yeah. Diner. Oh, you know, I uh, I grew up in Somerset. That's weird that you should say that. I, I love that diner. Somerset. Now wait a minute, we're talking about the Somerset Diner on Easton Avenue in Somerset. Yes. Okay, so <laughs> because it's a strange universe, two things: where the Somerset Diner is, right behind it, there used to be an old Thomas Edison Laboratory that was long gone. But when I first moved to Jersey in the late '60s, it was still there. But you know what's weirder about? where the Somerset Diner is, Gene. Well, I'm going to tempt you, but I'm not going to tell the story of this episode, but that was very close to the location of one of the most bizarre UFO episodes I ever had. Oh, yeah, right near the Somerset Diner. And a couple of times I've been there with my girlfriend, I, of course, have to always point out exactly where the whole thing happened and take her on the drive and show her where, well, we'll have to leave that for another episode. Okay, but so yeah. next I mean, I time... I go back to New Jersey and go to the Somerset Diner. I have to think David Bietney saw something strange there. Speaking of something strange, how did you become acquainted with the work done by the folks who run Weird New Jersey? Well, the answer to that is that I took a really fun day trip with my lovely honey, Susan. We went to New Hope, Pennsylvania, one of my favorite little towns in that part of the world. And we were in a bookstore in New Hope. And of course, whenever I go to a town, I always seek out the local independent bookstore and spend a couple, at least a couple of hours there because I'm a bookaholic. And um, they had a magazine rack. And on this magazine rack were a few issues of this magazine called Weird New Jersey. The minute I see anything with the word weird in the title, I have to go look at it. So I went over, took a look at one of these issues of Weird New Jersey, bought every issue they had. They had like three or four different issues. I got all of them. And it's all I read for like two or three days. I just poured over these things. It is an absolutely fun, fantastic, and strange magazine. The ultimate bathroom read. And uh, that's how I discovered Weird New Jersey. And it turns out then um, there was, uh, I think it was either one of my birthdays or it might have been the holidays that Susan's kids got me. I think it was the Weird U.S. book because these guys ended up starting to do books about weird states and they've got a whole line of these things and they're just really great i mean it's just a really fun magazine the books are fantastic and um these guys are well if they're half as much fun on the air as they are in the printed word we're going to have a heck of an episode and that's coming up next on the Paracast. i'm repeating we're not in kansas anymore we have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on the line. William, can you give us an offer for our readers about getting the magazine? Yes, I sure can. Here's an offer for your listeners. We have a special five-issue introductory offer for first-time subscribers, 1995 for your first five issues. Not available anywhere else, but on the Paracast. So, Bill, how do they place the order? People can place orders by going to www.ufomag.com. They can also place orders over the phone at 1-888-UFO-MAGA. Or they can write to us at Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Bill, give us that contact information again. It is UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Or they can go directly to www.ufomag.com. And they can also call 1-888-UFO-MAG. 
M-A-G-A, and they can subscribe right over the phone with a credit card. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. You never know what's going to happen next. So what exactly is it that makes weirdness so prevalent in New Jersey? Oh, that's what we've been trying to figure out for the past 15 years. <laughs> we've been digging and trying to get to the bottom of it. but uh, We keep thinking it will end, but it actually doesn't. It gets worse. It's really? a bottomless pit. What is it, the water? Is, is it like the New York pizza thing? Is it the water? Is it the fluoridation? What are we talking about here? A combination of the two, I guess. I don't know how to explain it. It's just it's, all we know is that there's there's always more and more stuff to um, investigate, and 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 more more people writing to us and telling us of new things that we didn't know about before. So we can't explain it. We're we're pretty happy that it <laughs> that it uh, that it continues. You know. Well, having spent a bunch of my childhood years growing up in Somerset, New Jersey. I can tell you that my experiences there as a kid definitely underscored the idea that weirdness seems ingrained in in, in the land there. I, just before you guys came on, Gene and I were talking about the Somerset Diner. He was aware of it, and Gene's been there, and, and I grew up in Somerset. And um, I was telling Gene that one of the things about just right that area right there was that right behind where the Somerset Diner is now located, there was one of Edison's original laboratories. I remember this when we moved out there from Brooklyn, New York in the late 60s. My father was quick to point this out to us. And I yeah, thought, well, we're, actually, it's funny you bring that up. We are speaking to you now from uh, deep within uh, Edison's uh, Orange Laboratory. That's where our office happens to be. Really? Mm-hmm. Yes, the okay. old battery acid factory. <laughs> Oh, man. Talk about toxic cleanup. I mean, so yeah, you guys... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been, we've had some real run-ins with blue goo dripping down the walls, and I'm not exaggerating or making Seriously? Yeah, yeah. There's, there's all kinds of uh, heavy metals uh, saturated into the building. His laboratory is right next door where he worked, but uh, we're in um, a big poured concrete building that um, was designed uh, for the manufacturing of his batteries. Before cars uh, were running on uh, gasoline, um, most cars were actually battery-powered, and Edison had a had a big stake in that, so they, they actually, ba- battery manufacturing was, was a big industry back then. Well, there got the electric car before the electric car, what do you know? <laughs> History is a strange, is a strange thing. Did both you guys grow up in Jersey? Uh, yes, we did. Yeah. Born and bred. And, Probably and never leave. That's what I was going to say. It's like, <laughs> It, what, there was some statistic where I guess some huge um, majority of people always returned within a 20 or 30 mile radius of where they were born. So I guess that's true for you guys too, huh? Well, that's where the work is. So that's where we'll stay, you know? I guess we'll just stay here till they kick us out. <laughs> and uh, you never know when that might happen. <laughs> it's been some close calls. <laughs> 
So why a magazine about Weird New Jersey? How did this come to happen? Well, you know, I guess we both had a pretty boring uh, suburban upbringing, and uh, when you're in the suburbs, you've got to have some kind of imagination of your surroundings. And, uh, you know, one day we just said, well, how come nobody's ever writing about this stuff? You know, how come nobody's ever writing about Albino Village or the Gates of Hell and that kind of thing? So we just set out to document these little quirky places that, you know, you could take a date on or ride around and check out, Gravity Roads, et cetera. Yeah, there was a, the, we knew um, a, a couple stories each, probably uh, from our you know own uh, hometowns uh, growing up. Um, but when we uh, started com- compare notes on this stuff, we uh, realized that there was a really a lot more out there than I guess anybody really suspected, um, and and nobody, as Mark says, uh, seemed to be documenting it. So. You know, it, it's 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 a lot more fun to say, well, instead of going to work today, let's go uh, look for Midgetville. <laughs> and, uh, now, and, I want uh, to make sure our listeners understand, we have not one but two Marks here. Yeah. And I want you to take a bow. Mark Moran. Speaking. Mark, is it Scareman? Yes, it is. Okay. I'm present. Okay, so Mark, Mark Scareman is present, and Mark Moran is jumping up and down. So the guy who's jumping up and down is the one who is Mark Moran. Okay, yeah, so I understand Mark Sturman is, is only 18 inches tall. <laughs> <laughs> Must be that blue goo affecting his genetic makeup. Oh, my God. Perfectly proportioned, though. Yeah. This is amazing. <laughs> so he's not like a Ken doll, is he? Anatomically correct. <laughs> he's he's like a Ken doll, except he is complete with genitalia. <laughs> <laughs> I think the I, dog suddenly has decided to chime in there. We have to watch <laughs> Open out. You heard the word genitalia. That's two times for that word on the show, which has never happened. The word's never been uttered, so it's been uttered twice within just like a minute. That's good. And the Are you art. sure Opie and Anthony started this way? <laughs> they might end this yeah. way. As long as you guys don't end that way. Yeah. Okay. No. Yeah, no, we're not going to go to... Uh, actually, I have a strange weird tie to Opie and, and Anthony, so we're not even going to talk about that, because that... That just gets too weird, and that'll take us to weird California. And and oh, we got a book on that. Well, I can tell you some things you're missing in that book, but we'll talk about well, that. Well, yeah, it is. There was there. We did have to make some omissions. It's uh, it's it's quite a large, diverse, and very strange state. You know, we, oh, we yes. tried to represent it as best we could in a single book, but uh, there probably is uh, two or three books that you could uh, get out of that state. Yeah. Well, um, let's start with the beginning of this thing. Okay. At the very beginning, what is the first thing that you encountered, investigated as part of your weird New Jersey odyssey? Well, I guess uh, I guess I guess it would be our, our first search would be uh, Midgetville. We so we set out to find. Now, most people yeah. uh, listening can assume what that is, but for for those folks who don't have a Midgetville in their state, it's, it's a fabled land where uh, an ice community of little people uh, live in uh, seclusion 
and all of the, uh, the buildings and street signs and so forth are scaled down uh, to their proportions to make uh, life more um, convenient for them. And it was always rumored that there was a midget fill here in New Jersey, uh, as there are. We found later on, we found that there were actually um, rumors of midget fills in several states uh, outside New Jersey, including Utah, California, Virginia, uh, Pennsylvania. But of course, we didn't know that at the time. We were working in sort of a uh, intellectual vacuum. <laughs> As like I said, this was before the internet really uh, blossomed, and before we started doing our own research. So we, you know, we just took the best leads we could find and um, and went out. Uh, looking for this for ourselves, uh, really out of our own curiosity. And, and all of these things, Albino Village and the Hooker Man Lights and things like that, it, it was all stuff that we just um, went out to see out of our own curiosity. And uh, I happened to be a photographer, and um, Mark was a publisher, so uh, if we were going, we, we um, documented it. And really for no other apparent reason than to satisfy our own curiosity and to uh, maybe put it into a newsletter sort of a, a document. Yeah, so I didn't realize it was going to be as popular as it, uh, as it has become. It's almost amazing. We're just put out our 20th issue now, and uh, it seems to really have a life of its own. Wow, we don't even get to put stuff in it anymore. <laughs> so many people writing stuff, their own adventures. Most of your stuff then is user contributions? Um, no, but I'll say a lot of it we like to get a lot of people's voice in the magazine. That's really what it's all about. It's not just mm -hmm. like, you know, two guys' opinions. It's bigger than that. The magazine, it differs from the books in that uh, the, the magazine has become almost like a, uh, a community bulletin board of um, people bouncing uh, stories off of us and, uh, and and we'll print them and then other people will have a conversation. You know, It opens up a dialogue about uh, unusual things in the state. Uh, whereas the books, we collect a lot of that uh, material and then um, uh, write it up, uh, put it into a, a sort of cohesive format uh, to explain the story to people, and then we'll often throw in a lot of the um, those reader letters that we get, so that uh, people, after they've heard the the story, can compare different uh, versions of it. That because uh, the same story can be told a lot of different ways, and usually uh, and usually is because most of these stories are um, really true to the form folklore and that uh, they're, they're passed on by word of mouth. So as you know, in a, you know, any game of telephone, uh, those stories do change along the way. And then we're actually, um, we, we like to see the, the variations on the theme. So, you know, we, we include that sort of material in the books as well. So did you find Midgetville? We actually found four of them. <laughs> in Jersey? We're yes. quite blessed here in New Jersey. Really? Um, four of them? Well, there were there are about four of them that were... Uh, people would, um, after we would write a story about uh, one particular Midgetville, say, in Totowa, uh, people would start to write. They'd read that article, and they'd write in and say, oh, well, you, 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 didn't, you never saw the one in Rancocos or the one in Edgewater. So the list started to grow, and there were four or five um, valid, maybe not valid midgetvilles, but certainly valid established uh, rumored 
third midget fills. Um, most of them turned out to be small, you know, they might have started out as small recreational communities with, you know, um, very humble bungalow type houses. Um, uh, those are the ones we consider to be sort of just the, you know, illegitimate midget bills, if you were. And then we have what one we consider to be the, the probably the, the best potential actual midget bill. So I take it the these places did not have live midgets. I, I just want to say those two words together, live midgets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would have been the topping on the cake. Right, I mean, just story. drive in and the little the people went out The stories we get about the midget fills are, though, uh, you know, kids will ride to the midget fill and uh, they'll say, oh, midgets come out and attack them with axes and stuff. And some of the letters are really hilarious. <laughs> and, yeah, that's the, the thing is that, you know, we uh, never did uh, discover any uh, midgets living in these places. Uh, but the stories that we would get from people, uh, you know, very uh, detailed uh, recount of, of their experiences and, and the the uh, the occasionally uh, violent run-ins that they've had with these angry uh, little people um, wielding axes and bats and shooting at their cars and <laughs> I think it's just the uh, it's just the over imagination of a you know a teenage spirit I guess you know but I guess it's we believe it you know if they tell us we believe it yeah I guess if I was a midget I'd be pretty pissed off at the world. What are you doing here? Yeah, in my town? We, we actually had one one letter said that um, they <laughs> the, their, the person's car got uh, shot at, so they went to the police station to show them the the holes in the car, <laughs> and they said they wrote to us this with all uh, <laughs> you know completely uh, honesty. They they said well, the police told us well. <laughs> The midgets are allowed to shoot you below the waist. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to see that that court trial. That would be pretty funny. I mean, once oh, in a while we get letters. Uh, you know, we never got letters from midgets, but we did get yeah. a letter from the National Organization for the uh, Albinoism and, you know, Association saying, please stop saying albinos have cannibalistic traits and sharp teeth. <laughs> want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene and data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Before all the albinos and the midgets call us here, I have to tell our listeners, you're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, and we're talking to Mark Moran and Mark Scareman, and these gentlemen are proprietors of Weird New Jersey. And so we have discovered a place for midgets, and then there was a place for albinos. Now, why do they congregate in areas like this? Well, I, I think that the uh, the legend of of Midgetville and uh, Albino Village as examples, albinos seem to freak people out, and like most legends, uh, they they grow out of people's fears and uh, subconscious 
uh, images that they have of people, and and they um, the, the albino village. I guess the, the legend was that the, these people were outcasts from society, and uh, for that reason congregated amongst their own um, in a very um, isolated, hidden enclave. But these are just two examples. I mean, this these are um, examples uh, from our chapters that we have in our books called Fabled People and Places, and there are examples of this all over the country in addition to the, the I mean the, the in Connecticut you have the frog people where people uh, have sworn to us up and down that you know that late at night if you go into the, the supermarkets you can see the uh, that's when the frog people come out so that uh, people won't see them so, so they go to the all-night supermarket and they're a inbred uh, group of people who live down a uh, very uh, isolated road up there uh, near Danbury but these little alleged fabled communities can be found um, all over them I mean, you have the melon heads it just goes on the list goes on and on. Uh, it sounds it, almost like a circus. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you know what? Speaking of circuses, you know, the, in, a, in a less sort of legendary and more realistic sense, uh, you could relate this story to um, Gibsonton in Florida, where all of the um, sideshow performers actually did create a community for themselves, where, you know, people with you know, incredible physical deformities uh, would would feel at home amongst each other, and uh, they they could feel comfortable and not be um, you know the, the subject to ridicule, and and uh, they they lived there quite happily for uh, well, some of them are still there. I mean, it's it's still a show business town. See, I always thought that place was Palm Springs, and I got that impression when I went to Sonny Bono's funeral and stole the media sign. But that's a long story we won't get into now. When I first uh, read your magazine, guys, the, the stories about one particular thing really grabbed me, and, and I'm going to ask you about this, and I'm, I'm going to wonder what kind of details you can provide to our listeners about the rather infamous Devil's Tree. I think we've gotten over 200 letters about the uh, Devil's oh, Tree. At least. That's kind of um, the strangest it, thing, man. What's up with it, that? It is just a tree. <laughs> no. What, what's it, it's a, it's a creepy-looking tree. Jeez. Yeah. The, the Devil's Tree is one of those, oh, I, I, I guess maybe because it is so creepy and it's out there all alone and in the, the middle of a, um, a field, it just inspires people's imagination. I guess, and uh, and legends start to arise about it. Uh, it almost it's, it just becomes like a hyper mystical epicenter for uh, you know a gateway into. Um uh, the unknown, you know, in the case of the Devil's Tree, it was the legend was that someone was hanged from it uh, after murdering their their families. Uh, their family they hung themselves from it, actually, as in many of our stories, many years ago. And, and ever since then, uh, the 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 tree is just just so evil that no snow will even fall around it. Which which is true if you if you go and you look at it in the winter, it's it's uncanny. Really? Uh, devoid of snow around the tree and then people say that the tree itself is actually um, warm to the touch uh, but uh, people are drawn to it um, and I think that like that or like the gates of hell or the devil's tower or, or any number of places people are drawn to uh, those things that they think might bring them in closer contact with the unknown because um, I, I think that you know, all people have a curiosity and uh, for, you know, uh, something 
other, you know, greater or, or less understood than they, they, you know, can really uh, grasp. Well, sure, that's the whole foundation for the interest in the paranormal, certainly. But you guys have been to this tree in the winter, and you're saying that you've seen snow in the area, but no snow around the tree? Sure, yeah. I mean, uh, really? we have people that... Uh, we don't make these legends up, you know. <laughs> We're just reporting on them. <laughs> they, uh, we get a, get a lot of letters that saying they, people try and cut the tree down, you know, with an axe. They try and chop it down. And because that, those who do so are are not long for this world. Yeah. So uh, a lot of brave youths will uh, uh, try to, uh, you know, prove their mettle by going out there with an axe or a chainsaw only to uh, meet very untimely ends. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I want to ask about that but first we want to hear from you if you have a comment or question about the Paracast send it to news at theparacast.com that's news at theparacast.com and don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene and data just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links that's the forum links at Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-728. 2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com that's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com what are you waiting for your fate awaits gene and i love to hear from our listeners if you'd like to share your thoughts with us Send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We are exploring Weird New Jersey with Mark Scarman and Mark Moran. It reminds me, what was the name of that movie where where somebody thwarts death in an airplane and all the people who are meant to die end up dying in some bizarre fashion? And okay, sounds like so, a lot of movies. That yeah, sounds, really. yeah, it sounds like a lot of movies. But okay, now in this case here, we're talking about people who try to chop down this tree. And what happens? They can't chop it down, or they chop it yeah, down? Yeah, they, they, they get a few chops in, but then they leave, and they either get into a car accident, or their hands turn black, or uh, you know, their feet very, turn yellow. Very, <laughs> something very bad happens to them. It's funny now uh, to protect the tree. They they put a because you can you can see the uh, the scars all over the trunk where people have uh, tried to chop it down. Um, they've recently put up a chain link fence, and and they haven't 
don't put that around the tree like you would expect. They've actually, it's, it's sort of a skirt that the tree wears. <laughs> it's, it's right up against the bark all the way around it so that uh, people won't mess with it anymore. Now, um, who owns the property this tree's on, guys? We're not sure. It's right on the edge of, uh, you know, an old, a, country, a country bend, so to speak. So I'm sure somebody owns it. Yeah, they've never come out of the woodwork, as it were. Uh, no, nobody has ever um, claimed ownership of it. But I'll tell you, if I own that tree, I would set up a little stand and charge 50 cents admission to come in and touch it. That's right. <laughs> At this yeah, point, it'd be more like $2. You could, you could rent a hatchet for a little extra. <laughs> <laughs> now, do you sell burial insurance, too? <laughs> well, it is in next to a big field. I've got to imagine that the people who live near this thing, I mean, I, I actually went and looked this thing up on Google Earth, and there are some houses not too far away. Um, I would imagine these people have got to be a little freaked out by folks constantly trooping up to this thing, right? Well, you know, as New Jersey landscape is changing quite a bit uh, with development. Now there are houses that aren't too far away. Uh, that wasn't the case when we originally investigated the tree. Actually, the only uh, person who was within any distance of it was one old uh, man who really lived without any um, sort of conven- modern conveniences. He lived... Uh, he, he styled his life after Thomas Jefferson, so anything hmm. that was invented after the time of Thomas Jefferson, uh, he didn't partake in. He lived in an old farmhouse, and uh, he wouldn't pay taxes or get a driver's license or anything like this. So he was sort of the a, a local hero or villain, depending on you know what your who who you were asking. But uh, he was the only one who lived anywhere near the Devil's Tree, and that used to uh, freak people out as well. Because when you drove by his house on the way to the Devil's Tree, you would see his huge plywood signs that he would have up railing uh, against the government and um, uh, just threatening the wrath of God against people on these crudely painted signs with huge crosses. And it was it was bizarre. He actually <laughs> declared it his own um, Indian reservation. So <laughs> that whole area <laughs> was, <laughs> was a little strange strange for more than one reason. One of the really strange things about the stories that people told about going to visit this thing was that they would then be engaged, after they'd go to the tree, then drive away, they'd be engaged in these chases with these phantom mm-hmm. cars that would, you know, try to run them down and then vanish. I mean, I assume you guys never personally encountered anything like that, no, did you? but I'm sure that has something to do with the houses that are close by. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the uh, the legend was always that a, uh, a black pickup truck would um, mysteriously uh, appear in your rearview mirror as you were uh, leaving after a visit from the devil's tree and uh, menace you, uh, try to run you off the road and then uh, disappear just as quickly as it had um, had appeared. And, you know, we usually did our investigations during the day, you know, because we wanted to get pictures of these uh, things that we were visiting. So right. uh, we never had uh, a problem with the, uh, the black truck, but uh, we hear stories about it uh, constantly. One of the things that we've not talked about enough on the Paracast, for my money, are hauntings. We've talked about this phenomenon a bit. I know that New Jersey is infamous for the vast number of homes that seem to exhibit signs of haunting, as is New York State, where I live. Have you guys personally, in the research work you've done, 
ever experienced anything of a haunting nature in a home that you guys were photographing or looking at? Well, we never caught any images on film. I did catch a doorknob move one time, but um, there was definitely strange feelings in certain houses you'd get. You know, I don't know whether the air was just thick or, or something that you, you felt like something was kind of had off kilter, you know, but no, no, uh, no close encounters. The closest I guess we get is we get really detailed uh, and believable testimony from the people who whose houses we go into to visit. And sometimes they have pictures they've taken that show some, some very, very unusual uh, images, sometimes nearly full-body apparitions in some of them. And, and these people have experienced things that uh, really make you wonder and you can tell by looking at them as they tell their story that they believe what they're saying 100 percent and uh since we it's always been our opinion that they they don't have any reason to lie to us uh, i mean we're not giving them any anything for their story other than the satisfaction of uh hearing hearing them out you know you, you really have to um you know, wonder whether what they're saying is uh, actually um, uh, an authenticated uh, paranormal experience. We had one house in uh, Jersey that was great. I mean, they would have like, you know, ball lightning come through the house and apparitions all the time. So they actually showed us this piece of paper one time. She had an old electric typewriter and uh, she said, we'll see this. Well, this, the typewriter started typing one day and the, and the plug wasn't in the in the socket and just typed out all this kind of, it looked like gibberish code kind of stuff, but it was we always tried to figure out what it said, but we never could. And then that was the same house where they have the, um, <laughs> they showed us a, a picture from uh, Christmas, about 1966 or something like that. And, and they had four kids, I think. And there was a uh, a fifth kid uh, in the picture that nobody could identify standing uh, at the Christmas tree. And then you could see right through the uh, three child. And yeah, it looked like a girl. She was holding some kind of doll. Yeah, or holding a doll or a teddy bear or something. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was totally bizarre. The husband there is a, he collects the Indian artifacts and, uh, basically he just, you know, like going to the properties. Yeah. <laughs> he has about 4,000 of them up on the third floor and we kept saying, hey, Glenn, don't you think these, you know, robbing these graves might have something to do with this? Oh, he goes, oh no, I think it's just underwater currents. <laughs> okay. <laughs> underwater currents? <laughs> yeah. I think there's some kind of underground stream going through their house or something. You know, as you guys were describing that, that photo, I just, Boy, did I just get a creepy feeling you when know, you said that fifth kid. I was like, oh. Yeah, we actually, that was, that was probably one of the better ghost photos that we have here from New Jersey. And the other one, really, really strange one, um, there's a, a historic building called the Van Wickle House where it was getting documented um, at some point, uh, I forget what, a year early, in the 20s perhaps, Mark? I think it was a WPA project. WPA, so it was in the 30s. They were documenting the uh, house for... Um, you know, WPA or the Library of Congress photos, and um, they took a picture of the uh, mantle uh, of the fireplace and the hearth, and um, just off to the side in a, in a hallway, you can see this um, transparent little girl uh, standing there. And this was, they, you know, this was not a case where people were looking for a ghost. They were just uh, documenting a historic house. And it, it, the, the, the picture really is uh, a, a great uh, example of a ghost photo. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to 
news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene in data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We are exploring the slings and arrows of Weird New Jersey with Mark Moran and Mark Skirman. And David, you were about to ask a question. I was just curious about when that photo would have been taken. The uh, mantle photo, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, on that 19, yeah, like Mark said, mid 1930s. We have another great one of um, somebody took a picture of a scoreboard down in Perth Amboy during a, a football game, and behind it is a cemetery. And when you look on one of the gravestones, you can see this transparent kid. It looks like he's in a Boy Scout uniform, just sitting on one of the gravestones. It's great. It's a really mm. cool one. Geez, another creepy one. So I'm looking on your website, and you have. The most haunted house, the Thomas P. Hunt house. What can you talk that's about? That's the one we were talking about. Yeah, that's, that's the one, the one. That we were t- talking about where, with the um, the Christmas photo. Oh. Uh, they, oh. this, they, this house is great because its vectors really run the gamut from sort of benign ones to uh, some that are very uh, poltergeist-like. Uh, everybody in the family has a, a different story to tell um, uh, about the encounters, uh, and some of them are, are actually funny. I mean, they, I can't imagine what it would be like for a kid growing up in the house but the father um, Glenn would tell us that sometimes he'd be out in uh, the the field and he'd look back at the house and he'd see his kids running down the street naked because they had jumped out there up up upper window <laughs> had got to get out of the house so fast because they, they had, had an encounter with a ghost and like Mark said before you know they'd, they'd be balls of uh, light that just sort of would move about the house from room to room and then what was that other one that the story that Jackie told Mark uh, oh wife? yeah Jackie was the wife and she said uh, one time Glenn was away on, on business and she crawled into bed and she said all of a sudden something crawled in behind her and like went up to her back and she started making these like guttural sounds like through her, through mm-hmm. her back and everything and she was so scared she just she didn't turn around but she just like reached behind her to, to feel if she could see anything or feel anything and she said it felt like coarse hair that yeah, was, like jumped in bed with her some sort of and entity just, hairy entity that was um, I think she jumped out of the window then too. <laughs> and it was projecting its uh, its voice through her and she was I guess channeling it but is experience like that <laughs> yeah I don't know but you know the odd thing is they love the house <laughs> and they don't want to move so they continue to live there oh yeah really oh. yeah we had uh, we had that American movie channel one time call us up and say hey do you know of a haunted house we can bring Tim Burton to to uh, you know uh, introduce oh, the movies for Halloween and everything they said well yeah we definitely know where to bring them so he, he set up there for I think two days and just you know introduced the film didn't one of the cameramen like have to leave that, that oh movie? right yeah yeah they couldn't take it they, they were too freaked out they saw something while they were there and they, they had just they, they couldn't they had to go back to New York what did they see I don't know we wanted in... something grabbed his leg remember oh what was that <laughs> And, um, we, we suggested the house to them, and then they brought up Tim Burton, and he spent a couple of days up there um, introducing horror films for uh, various nights of the week. We just dropped by and visited, um, and while we were there, they uh, they told us that the story that, uh, I guess, by the second day, one of the camera people had uh, already checked out. <laughs> 
because they got uh, they were they were walking upstairs and something uh, grabbed them around the leg and wouldn't let go. How much of the stuff do you think potentially are artifacts of people's psychological projection versus any kind of real external manifestation? In your experiences, well, uh, we don't have any idea of the percentage, or you know, how much of it is this and how much of it is that. And to us, it doesn't really matter because we're not uh, ghostbusters or mythbusters or anything like that. We are storytellers and documentarians. So, if the story is good and worth retelling, then it, that's that's all that we require. Um, you know, we're not going to um, bring out our ghost hunting equipment and try to um, get spectral readings or collect ectoplasm or anything like that. Right. We'll, you don't have those plasma yeah, what, what generators. What are you going to do with the ectoplasm? <laughs> you don't have those plasma <laughs> Make a generators. Cocktail, maybe. <laughs> so, you know, this, uh, a zombie. As, as long as the story's good, um, that's that's fine with us. And, and what you're saying about it, you know, being part of the, you know, maybe coming out of the uh, people's unconscious, that's even right. better for us because we're interested in the reason these stories are interesting to people is because there is some sort of common subconscious appeal that makes people envision these things in the first place and bring them to life and you know there is, is de there are definitely archetypal images going on here that people project into uh, focal points like the the devil's tree or um, the gates of hell or something like that so I think that's what makes the, the stories really worth uh, paying attention to rather than just writing off as just product of an over active imagination so so you're looking at this from a cultural point of view question where do you own personal belief systems take you? I mean, what do you guys feel personally is potentially legitimate or not? Well, I, I tend to think that there is some kind of dimension between life and death that maybe people kind of get thrown into and don't know how to get out. You know, I think that there might be another dimension out there somewhere that we can't see with our physical beings. So I would say, yeah, I do believe in ghosts and, and something in that area. I would say that since I don't know, I don't, I, I, I can't prove or disprove anything one way or another. Um, I, I sort of take like a wait and see attitude. You know, uh, we we keep exploring this stuff because we don't know the answer, and uh, we uh, hopefully like to know more some someday. But you know, who knows? Um, but. Uh, that's just uh, you know one simple once one small aspect of what we do because you know it, it could uh, our day could start off where we're talking about a ghost and then at the end of the day we're we're just uh, interviewing a guy who sits on the side of the road and waves at cars uh, you know <laughs> so you know it, it runs the it really runs the gamut and uh, we don't uh, focus too much on on any one aspect of oddities uh, we we really want to anything that's Weird and uh, and it's always uh, something di different, and that's that's the beauty of of weird. As long as it's unexpected and strange, then um, it, we we call it weird. And so you know, some some days it's a ghost, and some days it's just local nut. You want to just cast as wide a net as possible and grab all the crazy stuff that flies in, which leads me to one of the wackier stories I read about in your magazine, and I'd heard about this thing. Before I read about it in Weird, New Jersey, but that's that. And then I showed my girlfriend's kids, and they were just absolutely creeped out by that. Before we creep out our listeners, David. Yeah. 
This is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. Fascinated by the strange and unknown, things that go bump in the night, UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to ConspiracyJournal.com or email Tim Beckley at MrUFO at WebTV.net. It's all out of this world. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. We're talking on the Paracast with two Marks. Mark A and Mark B. No, Mark Skerman and Mark Moran. And if you go to weirdnj.com, weirdnj.com, you get more information. So, David, tell us the story that you want to know more about. Well, it's this thing called Oliver, the monkey creature. What's oh, you mean okay. the human Z? <laughs> yeah, what is that thing? <laughs> What's the deal with well, that? Well, come to find out, it is just an ape, but it just like to act human. <laughs> well, I, I, an ape that looks like that? I mean, I've never seen a monkey that looks like that. It's just weird. Yeah, I it's think the missing was... link, of course. <laughs> The missing stink, I heard. <laughs> I mean, it would, it would drink alcohol, it would make coffee. Sure, it would what drive a tractor, it would smoke a couple packs of cigarettes a day. No, nah, come on, seriously, what's the deal with that thing? They did test on it. They always thought he had like one extra chromosome or something like that. But uh, come to find out, he was he was all ape. He just had a human he just sensibility. Didn't look <laughs> oh, man. He got to, got to be very old, isn't I? Is Oliver still alive, Mark? I. I believe he is, but he's in California yeah, now. Yeah, he's not in New Jersey he's anymore. Not, or, or, and, and somewhere in, in the Northeast somewhere, but yeah, if he's still alive, he's very old. Did you guys ever get that, to... You know, that's, uh, it's one of those curious things that, uh, you know, we have a, a, a section in all of our publications called Bizarre Beef, and it could range from anything from, you know, a chupacabra to a, a human Z. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, it, it's hard to get a chupacabra to to, um, to study, but at least with Oliver the human Z, um, you know, it, it was an actual animal in a cage that they could conduct studies on, and it, it, its owners, of course, always asserted that it had one uh, human uh, gene in it uh, that just pushed it over the edge from the the, the chimp category into a, a semi-human uh, category, and uh, it's just fun to think about it, you know, especially when it, it, it looks so human, that ugly as it was. <laughs> it must have made for some great, great jokes, though, right? A guy walks into a bar with an ape, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I just, the picture I saw of that thing in your magazine, that thing just, it was just in my dreamscape for days. I just couldn't get that image out of my mind. We have uh, a lot of people here in New Jersey that look like that, though. <laughs> oh, oh, man. Come on. 
Well, I don't know. I, I vote for an Oliver. Hey, I'm only 18 inches yeah. tall. What you... Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm blue. Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, I think I've seen an illustration of you in a comic book. Um, <laughs> now, there's another thing that uh, we talk about a lot on the Paracast and kind of tease Gene in the show preamble. Um, I'm not going to get into it this episode, but there seems to be an incredible level over the years of UFO activity. In New Jersey, yeah, well, New Jersey's ranked fourteenth in the in the United States for sightings. Is that so? Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Based on where? Where? Where is that ranking? Well, I read it somewhere. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so much for references. Um, well, I, you want me to look it up? I'll be back in ten minutes. No, 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 no. no. Stay with us here. But do you guys know people who have seen UFOs in Jersey? Have you guys seen UFOs in Jersey? No, I haven't. I haven't. But I'll tell you, some of the letters that we get are um, really persuasive. I, I mean, it, we, we've had uh, really well documented uh, cases of UFOs, like uh, in uh, the 1966 sightings over the uh, Wanakee Reservoir, very well documented, seen by a number of police officers over a long period of time. Just really, really, really detailed historical accounts like that. I mean, that one is like the Roswell of of New Jersey. In addition to that, more recently, um, we've featured letters from people. The beauty of what what we do uh, in the magazine is once we print uh, a letter like somebody describes this UFO they saw uh, over um, Route 80, uh, we'll print that letter and then uh, we'll get feedback from all these other people corroborating the story saying they saw it too. And these are people who would never have reported that to any, you know, government organization they wouldn't have gone to the police they wouldn't want people to think that they're crazy but uh, we give people a forum where they can uh, tell their stories and compare them without being judged uh, in any way and uh, when you see unrelated sources corroborating a story and describing these UFOs in such detail that that matches other unrelated uh, people's stories uh, you know it really makes you um, you know wonder what what was up there the famous case at uh, Fort Dix in 19, I think, 78, where they actually captured some kind of alien on the base and uh, they shot it or something like that. That was that was a pretty uh, pretty big story. And then just a, a couple of years ago, you had the um, the uh, the triangular formation of lights right over the New Jersey Turnpike that was videotaped and really uh, hundreds of people stopped uh, on the uh, the turnpike. I mean, there's no question. Uh, this isn't just a lone nut looking at a UFO. This was uh, hundreds of people pulling their cars over on the side of the turnpike and observing these lights and uh, someone actually videotaped them they were they, you know it was all over the news for a while and, and nobody has ever come up with a any sort of uh, logical explanation of what that was even you know try as the the um, you know air traffic control might <laughs> uh, there was never any sort of um, uh, logical sort of explanation for that so yeah, what I always thought was interesting was those uh, early sightings from like 1890, where the people see these like mysterious airships uh, flying over the the country. Yeah, before there were airships. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there were a whole uh, there were a whole spate of those kinds of sightings. Mm-hmm. You got to remember that New Jersey also has like three military bases on it too. For for a small state, that's pretty large. I just recently got a book on a secret, uh, you know, aircraft, military aircraft, and 
a lot of these things are shaped like UFOs. You know, they're just, they look just so out of the ordinary. I mean, they're round, they're triangular, so who knows what people are really seeing. Well, I certainly think that some part of the UFO enigma, some part of those things are definitely caused possibly by... Well, sure, some part, but, you know, when you've got stuff happening in a way where things are at a scale that don't make any sense in terms of what technology we have, we've talked mm-hmm. about that on a recent recent show, it really makes you wonder. It's funny you guys brought up the Jersey Turnpike because the very first UFO sighting I ever had, with my brother, in fact, was on the Jersey Turnpike when my parents and my brother and I were driving back from Brooklyn to Somerset, where I grew up, and my brother and I saw this crazy orange UFO thing with these orange light panels around it, and it was at pretty high altitude flying above the turnpike. I guess it would have been just south of Cancer Alley off the turnpike. And, uh, Cancer <laughs> Alley, ladies and gentlemen, is that area where they have all those oil refineries yeah. when you go down right. the Jersey Turnpike. Hey, guys, yeah. we're going to have a brief break as we split into our second part of the show. Would you gentlemen like to go for another hour? I don't know. If we can, <laughs> I don't know if we could do another hour. We're, we're kind of swamped with the weirdness here. <laughs> Got a lot of weird to catch up on. Let me ask you then, gentlemen, how did you get a copy of Weird New Jersey? Well, you can just go to our website, weirdnj.com, and order it through there. And uh, if you'd like to see any of our other weird state books, um, you can go to weirdus.com, and that'll direct you over there. If you happen to be anywhere near a uh, Barnes & Noble store, we have uh, uh, books in all of those, and they're usually uh, pretty easy to find. And uh, yeah, check the History Channel for some uh, reruns of our TV show, and that's about it. Well, let's see. Here we are. We're going to be at the uh, Gettysburg uh, Ghost World Convention on July 21st, and we're going to have a weird day with the Newark Bears baseball game in Newark, New Jersey. On, yeah, if you happen to be in Newark, <laughs> you wear something weird, you get in for free. <laughs> oh, really? Well, actually, yeah, if you wear I, anything with the word weird on it, you can get in for free. Oh, I think I might we're have some, some books, and uh, we're going to have fireworks, and a couple of our crazy local characters are going to show up and say hello, and it should be fun. Sounds Excellent. like it's going to be downright weird, which is fun. <laughs> I want to thank Mark Skirman and Mark Moran of Weird New Jersey. Go to weirdnj.com. Thank you both for joining us on the PowerCast. See you around. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Gene. Thanks, Mark and Mark. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. So, Dennis, before we get into the nitty-gritty here, we really want to know one more time about the special, amazing Roswell UFO Festival coming in July. So tell us something about that. Well, it's scheduled for July 5th through the 8th, and this is the 60th anniversary of the Roswell incident, which is hard to believe that 60 years later it's still hanging on and still being questioned, but that's the case with Roswell. And the first one was held back in 95, or yeah, 95, and then in 97 was the 50th anniversary, and at that time we had about 40,000 people come to Roswell, which pretty well doubled the, the population of, of Roswell for a week. And then the past few years, it hasn't done real well attendance-wise or community involvement and things like that under the leadership of the UFO Museum, so the mayor decided for the 60th that the city would take it over, and he wanted it to be a family-oriented, fun festival in addition to the UFO stuff that will be here. 
and put together a, a committee back in uh, September of last year and asked me to be on the committee to help promote the festival and uh, to use my knowledge with uh, ufology and, and my contacts with different people. So we started meeting every Friday, and the meetings run about three hours each week as we plan all the, the activities for the upcoming festival. And uh, it's going to be big, there's no doubt about it, based already on uh, hotel rooms. Uh, Roswell has about 1,100 rooms available, of which I have already taken 76 of them for speakers and VIPs that are coming in. So anybody that's planning on coming should probably make their reservations fairly quickly. There are a few other places they can stay other than Roswell. Artesia, New Mexico is about 30 miles south of here. Rio Doso in the mountains is uh, about an hour away from Roswell. So there are other locations where people can, can stay. What we have planned is about 25 or 30 different speakers to talk about ufology and different aspects of it including Greg Bishop, uh, Stephen Bassett, Richard Dolan, Adam Goreidley, John Greenwald Jr., Michael Heiser, Tom Horn, Nick Redfern, John Rhodes, Peter Robbins, Rob Simone, and myself, and several others. We have so many speakers actually planned that we're going to have to have two venues. The main speakers will, will be speaking in the Art Museum, which is directly adjacent to the Convention Center here in Roswell, just a few steps away which seats about 150 people in the auditorium. And then uh, in the convention center itself, there are breakout rooms where some of the speakers will be doing some free lectures. So the visitors will have to decide who they want to see and who they want to hear. Okay, so it's going to be kind of a simultaneous deal here. Yeah, we're running four days, about eight or nine hours a day of solid speakers uh, for the UFO people that are interested in ufology. And the museum, the UFO museum, is not working with the city this year. They're doing their own thing and have their own speakers set up for some reason. But there will actually be probably 50 to 60 different speakers in town, either at the convention center or at the UFO museum. Dean Hagland, uh, better known as Langley from the X-Files, will be here and visiting with the people. Peter Lipskin, who is a, a astrophotographer and stargazer and lifelong student of the sky, will be here. And uh, the activities that the mayor wanted for the public, uh, for those people who are not interested in ufology, there will be a lot to do other than the UFO stuff. That will include on the 4th of July, and I talked to the mayor about this, that we needed to remember what the 4th of July really is. It's not about UFOs. It's Independence Day, and it's a way we can honor that and our military people. So the churches here in town have decided to do their thing on July 4th with concerts and different things, and then that night we'll have the big, well-known fireworks display, which is always good. Some of the other activities planned, we're bringing in Murphy Brothers Exhibition Carnival, which does the New Mexico and Missouri State Fair. This is one of the bigger carnivals in the country. We will have musical entertainment by Alan Parsons Project, a couple of nights of concerts, uh, laser shows with the concerts, and like I said, Dean Hackman will be here, Doug Oak, who is introducing a new book. Uh, we have helicopter rides, hot air balloon rides, alien costume contests. Then the night parade, which is always fun because it's nothing but a bunch of woo-woos that get together and, and put on a parade. That night and also the night of the concerts, if people will look to the east, there will probably be a UFO visible 
at about 5,000 feet. I've been in contact with them, and they're willing to come this year and, and make a make an appearance. So that's something that people should look forward to. Uh, we have a theat- theatrical play. We have uh, marathon running events, static air displays. Uh, down at the airport, we're going to bring in one of the airplanes from the movie Toro, Toro, Toro with the Japanese airplane. There'll be hang gliders, parachutes, and some static display of Black Hawk helicopters and, and different aircraft. So a lot going on those four days, and some mayors hope that there'll be so much activity that people will have to come back to Roswell. <laughs> and, of course, that's what he's looking at. He's looking at the, the revenue end of this, and, and that's big business for, for Roswell. Anybody that's been here knows that all the storefronts downtown have aliens in the windows, and the street lights have alien eyes on them on the globes we have the only mcdonald's restaurant in the world that's shaped like a flying saucer or walmart has aliens on the front of the building so it's kind of a unique place but uh, you mentioned roswell and automatically ufos come to mind now, dennis i'm listening to this sounds like a lot of fun and it sounds like the kind of thing that i know that i'd want to go to this kind of an event but that mm-hmm. said as you're describing this I'm just going to play devil's advocate for a moment because that's I know where you're funny. going. Well, I mean, yeah, you do know where I agree. Going. You know, there are people who are going to sit there and say, well, based on what you're describing, it sounds like there is a sense of trying to inject fun into this topic, and that's fine, but when, you know, you just said, oh, there's going to be a UFO of 5,000 feet, and, you know, I, I think that some of the more skeptical members of our listening audience would, would hear this and say, this is... Um, perhaps not helping the argument for serious discussion about what really happened at Roswell. What would you say to them? That comes up all the time. And as a serious researcher, which I consider myself, I have problems with the festival activity part of it. However, living here, I also realize the revenue that it generates. Mm-hmm. And it's hard hard for me as a researcher to buy into all this. And at the meetings, I'm not too popular sometimes when they go off on their tangent on this stuff. But I have to understand that this is the biggest event in Roswell all year long. And for those that are interested in the UFO subject, we have plenty for them. If they don't want to go to the carnival or to the concerts, that's fine. And those people that it draws to Roswell for the carnival probably wouldn't be going to the the UFO events anyway. So it's really two separate venues at two separate locations, but we think it just it gives a, a broad opportunity for anybody that wants to come to Roswell for whatever reason, be it the UFOs or be it the, the other part of it. So if I'm coming to Roswell to talk about UFOs, and if I came to you and said, Dennis, who should we go to that is alive from that episode that was perhaps as close as possible to the goings-on in, in 1947? Who should we go speak to? Who are the most compelling, still-living witnesses to any of what supposedly happened in 1947? Well, and I'll probably get in trouble for saying this, but Jesse Marcel Jr. is a first-hand witness. His daddy mm-hmm. was the intelligence officer. Right, he's been on our Jesse, show. He's a great guy. Jesse's coming out with a book this summer. He's right. written, written his first book, and it'll be coming out during July. His publicist called me and asked if Jesse is scheduled to, to do a lecture at the UFO Museum and sell the books there. And the publicist wanted to also book him at the Civic Center with us, with the City Festival, to do the same thing. And I told him, you're going to have a problem with the museum doing that. He said, no, I'll handle that. So he contacted the museum 
and mm-hmm. called me back and said, sure enough, if we go to the city, we're told that we're not permitted at the UFO Museum. Hey, before we go into that, and that's another subject almost entirely. I think most of you know that I love radio, and so I decide to look for the ultimate receiver for AM reception, because I want outstanding AM reception, day and night, especially night where it gets difficult. So I've discovered that Seacrane's CC Radio Plus has earned the reputation of having the best AM reception, which is exactly what Seacrane intended when they designed this gem of a radio. Along with its legendary AM reception, it also has excellent FM reception, a weather band, TV audio, and the ability to run on batteries for, and listen to this, 250 hours. So whether you use it as your bedside radio in your kitchen or at work, the CC Radio Plus will give you the pleasure of clear AM reception. The radio is designed for the clarity of the human voice and the benefits of useful features like five memory buttons per band. They work just like memory buttons in your car. A sleep timer. An alarm clock so you can get up at the right time, and a weather alert that now works as an all-hazards alarm. You know what I want you to do? I want you to buy that radio, but also support this show by visiting our site, theparacast.com. That's theparacast.com right now. Click on the C-Crane sponsor button to order the CC Radio Plus for $164.95, and that includes free ground shipping and a free C-Crane catalog. Place your order today. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, and we have the truth secret Roswell. Dennis Balthaser rejoining our show. We're talking about this great festival coming this summer, but the one thing we have again is the ego problem. And we have the museum on one hand, we have the city of Roswell on the other. Isn't this ridiculous? Just a little bit ridiculous. It's beyond that. The mayor. Hey, it's has, a lot ridiculous. Okay, I'll, I'll grant that. The mayor has uh, tried on several occasions to talk to the board of directors and the, and the director of the museum to resolve this. As a mayor, that's his job: is to bring people together and, and have community relationships. For whatever reason, the museum has decided they're not doing that. We don't know if it's because of the failures of the, the recent festivals, and, and this is their way of getting back at us. We don't know. Needless to say, Jesse's Jesse Marcel's publicist called me back and said I was right. He said we were told that if we go to the city festival, we're not welcome at the museum. But he said we decided we'd go with the city because of the venue being larger and more people right. and more opportunity. I said, fine. So I went to the, the meeting to the festival meeting and I said I got Jesse Marcel coming and we were really excited that was at a Friday morning meeting on Friday afternoon I got a call that Jesse had been contacted by the museum and told directly 
that if he went with the city, they wouldn't be welcome at the museum. So they decided to stay with the museum. So if anybody wants to see Jesse Marcel, he will be at the UFO Museum, along with several researchers that they're bringing in. Well, you know what? I have a suggestion for that, Dennis. What I would do if I were you guys is I would talk to Jesse about him doing his thing at the museum early on, and then when he's finished there, simply walking away from it and coming and speaking at the official event. Now, what is the what is the museum going to do? Sue him? I mean, this is just ridiculous. And, and if I were him, that's exactly what I would do. I'd say, well, oh, yeah, do your thing and do it and then walk away and come right back over to the other venue. You're understanding now what I'm faced with living here in Roswell and having to deal with this. I was with the museum from 96 to 98 as the UFO investigator. I was on the board of directors. I was there 70 hours a week as a volunteer for two and a half mm -hmm. years and left. And there is a note by the greeter's desk at the museum right now as we speak saying that Dennis Ballfazer is not welcome at the UFO museum. Oh, that's just silly. That's childish. Oh, come on. Now, you know, I agree with I'm what one David of it. said. I agree, really, that that would be the biggest thing to do, which is to go ahead and tell Jesse Marcel Jr., do your speech, then come over to us, and, and you know, you could be a surprise guest, whatever, and just mm -hmm. tell these people where to go, how to get there, and to stop this nonsense. I told the publishers, I told his publishers, I said, you're welcome to come to the convention center anytime you want. Just let us know you're coming and, and we'll, we'll pitch you in somewhere. I know of two other researchers that were told the same thing, that if they have anything to do with the city, that they're not permitted to go to the museum. Hopefully this will resolve itself in the next year or so. It's hard for me to understand how the board can, can continue, their board can continue to, to support this type of thinking, but that's, mm. the, the museum is a big revenue generator for the city, and maybe that's the reason the city doesn't do anything. My suggestion to the mayor was that the lodger's tax be shut off. If they're not going to work with the city, they're not entitled to lodger's tax. There's several things that can be done, but right now we want to get the festival done and bring people here to have a good time and hopefully the, the other stuff will not filter into it. And hopefully not run into a situation like this where you end up with these people and their nasty egos and maybe something like with Jesse Marcel. Of course, now that I've said it on the air and David has said it on the air, they will probably have an armed guard to stop him or something. I don't know. <laughs> okay, well, we're going to stop it. And now this is going to make the national wires as they... James Carey on this head of MUFON, the, the international National Organization Mutual UFO Network, and I've been in contact with him, and he is also scheduled to speak at the museum. And I told him, I said, well, you're welcome to come. He said, well, I'm coming. He said, uh, I'm representing MUFON as an international group, and I will be at both places. Now, whether he does or not, I don't know, but I have a vendor's table for him if he wants to come to the convention center. Well, speaking along the lines of inflated egos and personalities in this realm, Dennis, at this point, given the wide range of people who are attending the festival, do you expect there to be any, for lack of a better way of putting it, public altercations between opposing voices? There are a lot of people that still question what really happened mm -hmm. in Roswell in 1947. Um there is a lot of disagreement. Obviously, there have been so many strange cover stories that have come out. The, 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 the Air Force keeps trotting out revised explanations. You have a book that I've brought up on the show before that has a really radical alternate theory about what happened at Roswell. I mean, do you, do you guys expect there to be friendly debate or 
Is there going to be a cat fight happening out in the desert? <laughs> well, what I've noticed recently on the Internet is there's a lot of discussion, again, about two phases of the Roswell incident. One is the debris field where Mike Brassel, the rancher, found the debris. Mm-hmm. And the non-believers continue to go with the mogul balloon theory, which has been disproven several times by prominent researchers like David Rudiak and Stan Friedman, myself, and several others. And the other thing is the pictures that were taken in General Ramey's office. And right. I am currently in process of writing a new editorial, which will be out June 1st on my website and 22 other websites and UFO magazines. And basically what it comes down to is that the non-believers and the debunkers absolutely will not accept factual information. They don't present anything new or counter to what we present, and the debate just continues. Uh, as far as here in, at the festival, no, I don't anticipate any anything like that. Hopefully there will be both sides of the story for the public. That's, that's important, and I've always been a, a big believer in giving debunkers the opportunity to debunk, but I would appreciate if they'd come up with some new information once in a while instead of just putting down what we say. What about when the debunkers make the same statement about the pro-alien theory that um, they say, well, there's been no compelling new information to support the idea that there was an extraterrestrial crash in Roswell. What what would you say to them? Well, we've been given four excuses by the Air Force in in 60 years, none of which have withstood the test of, of actual research. You have 2,000 websites on the internet on Roswell, and that is a problem for people like myself who have to spend way too much time putting out fires for people who claim to be experts on Roswell when in fact they've never been here, never interviewed a witness, don't know where the crash sites are or anything like that. It's second, third, and fourth hand research, and that just doesn't cut it. This Mm -hmm. research requires validation and confirmation. We have that for the mogul balloon. There was this mogul 4 balloon, which supposedly is what crashed. We have the records indicating that the flight was canceled because of weather. So the balloons are released without any equipment on them. Once they fill them up with helium, they can't take them down, so they, they just release them. But Dr. Moore, who was head of the Mogul Project, did some calculations on the trajectory, and he was 70 miles away from the uh, crash site. I mean, there's just there's too much factual information. Do I have anything physical? No. I don't have anything that I can say, here it is, this is what it was. Right. But based on the witnesses that I've interviewed over the years, our judicial system in the United States is based, can be based on the testimony of one witness. Uh, you can go to court, and based on testimony of one witness, you could get sentenced to life imprisonment or even execution. We have hundreds of witnesses, and we can't get in a courtroom. You know, there's a, a problem now in the field of paranormal research, which is the fact that at this point in time, it's pretty clear that photographic evidence, what's typically been considered a pretty strong element in any kind of a court case, any kind of a criminal case, that at this point, photographic evidence is essentially useless. It can't be trusted. Uh, There are too many ways now with digital tools to fabricate, to alter photographs, to present anything you want. So I understand the issue about, uh, you know, physical evidence and that really in, in the UFO field, it seems to come down to believable witness testimony and the corroboration of that testimony among multiple witnesses. That 
seems to be really the only thing that we have that leads to a compelling investigation route because, as I said, photographic evidence goes out the window. There's a huge case right now going on that uh, a, I don't want to say the actual name of the show, but uh, Toast to Toast has some photographs up that are clearly fabricated of some ridiculous thing that you know, is claimed has been cited over a couple of sites in California. It's created a tremendous amount of discussion and debate on the internet. And there are people who simply believe that this thing is genuine extraterrestrial technology when image experts like myself have stated emphatically and absolutely that this thing is a fabrication. Other people simply won't listen. They they refuse to believe that this is a hoax thing. And so they're saying these photographs are real and you debunkers just don't want to believe. Exactly right. Right, and, and that not only is with the internet because people believe so much is on the internet, but these documentaries on TV, they're based primarily on ratings and profit, not factual information. If you're looking for a better way to present or collaborate during your conference calls, your solution is simple. Web conferencing with GoToMeeting. During your call, everyone logs on to GoToMeeting.com. And your computer screen shows up on their computer screens. It's like you're all in the same room. GoToMeeting is perfect for sales or product demos, training, or real-time collaboration. Plus, you're not charged per minute like other providers. You can meet as often as you want for as long as you need. With GoToMeeting, you can meet with anyone, anywhere, without leaving your office. You'll not only save time, but money, too. See for yourself. Try GoToMeeting free for 45 days. Just visit GoToMeeting.com forward slash podcast. That's GoToMeeting.com forward slash podcast. Try GoToMeeting today. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with James Spangler and David Bianchi. You never know what's going to happen next. This is the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're trying to do a little truth-seeking, so we have the truth-seeker at Roswell, Dennis Balthaser, and as you say, television, whether it's news, entertainment, it's designed to get ratings and advertisers, and that's it. Now, let me give you some facts on, on this debris thing. You know, Mike Brassel was the ranch foreman who found the material, and he was familiar with weather balloons because prior to 1947, he had recovered some of them and turned them back into the Army Air Force for the small reward they were offering. They had a tag on them where to turn them in. And with the top intelligence officer in the military at the time, Major Jesse Marcel, 
be asked to go 65 miles from the base with the CIC operative, Captain Cavett, to review the situation and arrange for a balloon and themselves bring the debris back to the base and shortly after have Marcel fly some of that debris to 8th Army Air Force headquarters in Fort Worth for General Ramey to look at it. And would that same debris from a balloon then be flown to Wright Field in Dayton, Ohio? And why 40 years later with the Air Force publisher report indicating that what was found on the ranch in 47 wasn't a flying saucer as reported by the media on July 8th of 47 after the base press release, nor was it a weather balloon as General Raymer reported in the media the next day on July 9th, but rather a mogul balloon. And these mogul balloons were advanced planning intended to detect any future nuclear testing being done by the Russians as observed from a high altitude balloon. And they were being launched to see if they could be kept at a constant high altitude. Now, to the critics of the non-believers, it doesn't matter that the Russians didn't do any nuclear testing until 49, two years after the incident. That's what makes the research tough. Uh, the frustration of doing this is unbelievable at times when you consider, like the National Geographic show I talked about, I, I filmed for six hours with them people, never reimbursed for anything or even a thank you, used my vehicle to run around southeast New Mexico to take film and then when they come out, the announcer at the end of the show said Roswell was nothing but a myth. But we weren't allowed to be have any input as to the final product after it hit the editing room. Well, we're back to the, the ratings game and the fact mm -hmm. that at this point, it's pretty clear that any discussion of this in the mainstream media is marginalized. It's reduced to entertainment. And again, Dennis, that, that's the reason that I cite the concern I think a lot of people have with the anniversary event, yeah. having any sense of connection to entertainment. I think people well, feel I, this I, has already been pushed to that end, you know. I found out when I was with the museum, and the museum gets 150 to 200,000 visitors a year. 90% of the people that came into that museum were there out of curiosity, nothing else. They had no right. interest in UFOs. They were just there. They heard about Roswell. They were in the area. They stopped at the museum. And that's why most people come here. But I'll maintain that we as a festival are offering to the people that are interested in ufology, serious researchers, where they can share information and obtain information. And I don't believe that those people are going to be concerned about whether there's a crime going on a half a mile away or a mile away. I think the people that are serious about the, the research will do that, and the others will be do the carnival atmosphere. I want to go back to the actual event for a moment, Dennis, and I want to ask you a question. Okay. So we have, on July 8th, 1947, the press release talking mm -hmm. about a retrieved crash flying disc. And then within, what, a day or two, we have a retraction from the Air Force. We have um, a statement that, no, this was not what it appeared to be. Just forget about yeah. that. Now, here's the question. At that time in the Air Force, what would have been the power mechanism? What would have been the decision-making mechanism that would have been prepared to take a statement like this and to deny it, if, if indeed we have here a genuine episode, how is it that the Air Force would, A, allow there to be a press release on one day and then the next day or a, or a couple of days later retract that? How would this have actually gone down in the power structure of the Air Force at the time? Good question. 
Colonel Blanchard was head of the 509th Bomb Wing, who was stationed here in Roswell. Those are the same guys who dropped the atomic bombs in Hiroshima and Nagasaki to end the Second World War, the, the only atomic bomb group in the world. So they were they were not typical GIs. They were the best we had. Right. Jesse Marcel was the top intelligence officer in the country at the time. Today, the B-2 stealth bomber in Missouri is also the 509th. They're still the atomic bomb group. Colonel Blanchard and General Ramey had to be in contact with each other and I cannot believe that Colonel Blanchard would have issued that press release saying we have in our possession a flying saucer without the general knowing about it. Right. And the information that we've gathered so far, based on the pictures taken in Ramey's office where he's holding that piece of paper, teletypes as victims of the wreck. The community of ufology of researchers agree that the words victims of the wreck is on there and also some reference to a cover story about a balloon whether that information came down from washington or general ramey eighth air force made the decision we don't know but we do know that major marcel went on to become a like colonel we also know that colonel blanchard went on to become a four-star general at the pentagon considered for joint chiefs of staff so if he messed up by going public saying we had a flying saucer certainly didn't hurt his career. On the other side of the coin, did he get those promotions because he covered it up? Mm -hmm. We don't know that. <laughs> For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's one 800 728 2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Let me tell our listeners, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. And we're looking back into Roswell as we come to the 60th anniversary. Of course, we have that great festival that's going to be taking place in Roswell, New Mexico. The 2007 Roswell UFO Festival, July 5th through 8th. And joining us, of course, the truth secret Roswell himself, Dennis Balthaser. Have we reached the point here, Dennis, where maybe we're just not going to be able to get much more information about Roswell we can basically research what we have, but with so few witnesses left to talk to, 
It's got to be really difficult. It's beyond that. The guys that were involved in 47 or 70, 80 years old, if they're still alive. Surprisingly, there are still some out there. I got information within the last few months of a gentleman who claims that he flew one of the C-24s from Roswell to Wright Field with some of the debris. I've been in contact with him. I'm trying to get his military records out of St. Louis to verify that he was in the service when he said he was and where he was, whatever information is available. But he claims that he was flying freight out of the Pacific for nine years for the Air Force and was told to report to California and drop a load and report to Roswell, which he did. They loaded him up here in Roswell in July 1947, flew to Wright Field in Dayton, Ohio, opened a hangar, and there was another C-24 inside being unloaded. They unloaded him, pushed him out, said, go back to California, you never made that trip. I'm working with him right now. I have another witness that father, his, her father worked for Pratt & Whitney in Key West, Florida, who claims to have worked on a 70-foot diameter craft that was at Pratt & Whitney in Florida in the 1950s. When you find a witness, many times I'll get a hold of them and they'll tell me they weren't stationed here. I happen to have a copy of the Ross Warren Airfield yearbook from 1947, which is like an old high school yearbook with pictures and all the squadrons and the ranks and things like that. And I'll tell them, I'm looking at your picture. You were in squadron such and such, and your rank was such and such. And then they know I have them. And they say, okay, I was there, but I'm not going to talk about it. And normally that's as far as the conversation can go because I can't push them further. Are these people still afraid that there's going to be some kind of federal or military uh, retribution against them? Some are. They're they're afraid of their retirement, many of them, that they'll lose their retirement. I try to convince them that that's not going to happen. And then they're afraid for their own personal safety, many times for their own and their family. And, you know, we keep hoping for some deathbed confessions, and they're very far and few between. We've had a few, but and things are so different. Uh, Sixty years ago, if you were told to shut up for national security, you did it because you respected and trusted the government and the military. We don't have that today. Many times at lectures, I'll ask the audience, name five people in the government you respect. I get a blank look. <laughs> That's unfortunate that we've come there, but I'm starting to emphasize to young people, and by young I'm talking up to the age of 40, to start asking and demanding answers to questions because we're living in a world of cover-up, and it's being accepted by the young people. They don't know any better or they don't care, I don't know, but... You know, Iran-Contra, Vietnam, Watergate, the Kennedy assassination, that's all cover-up. And that's not news. And these young people need to start asking questions and demand answers. I'm 65 years old. I thought in my lifetime I would know some answers. And I'm beginning to think I won't. If what I do in this research ever proves to get to the truth, then it was worth my effort for my kids or my grandchildren. Well, see, here's the thing, Dennis. We've been talking a lot lately on the Paracast about... The theories of what what these craft and creatures are, and if there is a true paradox happening, then why is the government being so quiet about it? And there's a theory we've begun tossing around on this show, and we're not the only ones who are talking about this, but I'm going to run this by you and see what your reaction is. Okay. It's going to sound a little strange, but, but there you have it. This is certainly the nature of the beast when it comes to talking about this stuff. And David and I, by the way, epitomize strange. Well, certainly, Gene, I've been trying to work with some pictures of you, making them look better, and man, you are you are just seriously strange-looking cat. Just, 
I, if I saw you in a dark alley, I might, I might like scream like a girl. But that's another story. Well, I've done um, that to a lot of people. It certainly gets me a lot of work in movies as yeah. a film actor. I don't have to put makeup on. It's just wonderful. It came from the Black Lagoon. So here's the thing, Dennis. Okay. Let's say for a moment, you know, let's say that something crashed in Roswell. Government went in, retrieved it, took one look at it, and said, "Oh man, we have to keep this really quiet." Maybe. Just maybe. What we're talking about here is something that's not as simple as an extraterrestrial craft. Maybe we're talking about something more complicated. Let me, let me just throw this out to you. Maybe what we're really talking about here is a craft of beings and beings that are not human, but are possibly not alien. Maybe what we've got happening here is that maybe we have some sort of life, life forms, creatures that want us to believe they're extraterrestrial because then we wouldn't be so threatened by them as if we would feel if we found out that these creatures live inside this planet or maybe on this planet in a dimensional offset. Maybe we're dealing with creatures that actually have been here longer than humans and have figured out a way to exist on this planet alongside of us, but in, in a stealth fashion. And, and the reason I'm, I'm bringing this up is that we have such a large percentage of UFO sightings that occur on, near, or around water. There have been a lot of sightings of these things going in, for example, to the ocean, or going underwater. And when we start to look at that, and we start to put two and two together, it all of a sudden becomes it becomes odd. You start to peel away the layers of the onion here. Maybe what would happen if the government retrieved a craft, retrieved beings, and was able to figure out that indeed these things, let's just, again, for argument's sake, they're from Earth. They're a species that are superior to us. We're not the top of the food chain. Maybe these things are the top of the food chain. The government discovers this and says, oh, this is just so strange. If our society knew about this, there would truly be a breakdown because we wouldn't be able to handle the idea that we weren't the top of the food chain on this planet. So maybe the government now says, well, let's let the extraterrestrial story get out there because at least then people think, well, if they're from another planet, then it's not like we have to worry about them really being here. They just come visit and they go away. Versus a species that actually lives here, that if we knew that, we'd be a lot more concerned. And especially if we knew that, hey, this is a species that can move in between dimensional constructs and they're always around us. What do you think about that theory? How crazy does that sound to you? Well, with my engineering background, I first of all don't think it's crazy at all. Dimensions is a, is a topic that's been brought up many times that it could be our own future or our own past. My theory, and this is strictly my theory on the Roswell right. incident, is whatever was recovered, and we know something was recovered. I'm not going to go out on a limb and say it was extraterrestrial because I don't know that for a fact. It, right. All indicators seem to think it was. But my theory is that whatever was recovered, the United States government and the military still don't know how it operates, propulsion, guidance, things like that. They don't know where it was from. They don't know what their motive was for being here. And until they can get the military advantage out of whatever they recovered, they will deny it happened 
until they use it. <laughs> we don't do anything with our daily life that the military hasn't already done. I've heard one time that uh, military technology advances about 15 years for every calendar year. If that's the case, we're talking 60 years of calendar years versus a lot of years of technology. But I really don't think they know what they recovered or how it operates or where it's from. And until they can get military advantage out of that, because we certainly don't want our adversaries knowing about it, and you can't tell your friends without your enemies knowing. My theory is that whatever was recovered, they still don't know what it is or how it operates. And until they get the military advantage out of it, they will not go public and admit it happened. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene in data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, and we're talking to the truth seeker at Roswell himself, Dennis Balthaser. And, of course, we remind everyone, the Roswell UFO Festival 2007 edition, July 5th through 8th, 2007. And, alas, there is a city version, which sounds like a lot of fun, and then there's that museum place that we don't like because they're taking a rather head-in-the-sand approach. Is that a good way to put it? Mm-hmm. Good way to put it, perhaps. So, Dennis, uh, here's, here's the thing about... I, mean, I want to follow up with you about that military advantage angle. If, indeed the military possesses some technology that gives them some sort of an advantage, wouldn't you think we would have seen some demonstration of this technology based on the absolute, in my view, the the absolute failure of the American military to deal with situations that are going on around the world right now? Given I was in the Army for three years, guys. Yeah. And 1959 to 1962. Mm Mm-hmm. Our military today is not the military it was in the First or Second World War. Right. Ever since the Korean War, we have not declared a war. It's a political involvement. Right. And I, I don't believe we're in any wars today to win them. I think it helps the economy by generating employment and, and opportunities for people. I'm very discouraged with, with the way we handle what should be and is the best military in the world. And it's all part of this cover-up I mentioned earlier, I think. It's, it's just disheartening for me as as a 65-year-old to think what our kids or grandkids are going to be dealing with. Yeah. And this yeah. this is the biggest, biggest story of the millennium, if it's true. I'm not egotistic enough to think that we're the only thing there is in the universe. If you're Christian and believe in God, then God screwed up by making us because he certainly could have done better. <laughs> and and I'm disappointed. This frustration I go through every day almost doing this research, you know, batting my head against the wall and fighting with the Army and the military and the, and the government, continually lied to about everything. It's just really frustrating. Well, th- that gets to the point, though, of the fact that we've not seen any clear sign that our military at this point possesses any clear technical 
Oh, advantage. I think we have. Uh, uh, have you? The, B, the B2 and the Stealth F-117 both have technology that just jumped. No, I, I understand. No, in terms of certainly aviation technology, you know, certainly, clearly, we have vehicles that could outperform anything that's coming out of any other military in the world. I'm not questioning that, Dennis. Mm-hmm. Just talking about, in, I mean, when we look at how the U.S. military role has played out in the Middle East, I mean... You know, all the B-2 bombers in the world haven't been able to track down Osama bin Laden. Of course, there are listeners who would say, well, finding Osama bin Laden has never really been a priority of the American military. And and that gets us into the whole, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. conspiracy realm. But I'm just talking about the things that I've been reading in soldiers' blogs that are coming out of Baghdad that are so damning that at this point now, the military just in the last week has declared a clampdown. Mm-hmm. on soldiers' freedom of speech and their ability to actually document what's been going on there because if one peels back the layers and bypasses the mainstream media, one finds that there is a terrible disaster going on over there with our troops, with how they're being deployed, with how they're being right. equipped. It's an absolute, complete, unmitigated disaster. And that doesn't well, I, can, I can throw in another wrinkle here, too, sure. and, and not the military, but NASA. NASA. Mm-hmm. Why are we still using solid fuel rockets, which is the most dangerous way to put our astronauts in space, if we have other technology? Which leads me to believe that we have two space programs. We haven't gone back to the moon for some reason, and we can't go out in space very far. We had unsuccessfully most times with the, the Mars probes. To me, NASA stands for never a straight answer, and I believe that we have more than one space program. I think we have the NASA program for the public, just like we had Blue Book for UFOs, which was nothing more than a means of pacifying the public. And I think we probably have other another space program where we're doing a lot more than the, the public knows about. So what do you think or believe is the content of that other space program. I mean, the problem with this, Dennis, and and I'll I'll just share something with you, and I'm going to go ahead and make an enemy in the audience now, but there's a website I frequent called AboveTopSecret.com, and there's a guy on there by the name of John Lear. And John Lear, I'm convinced he's absolutely out of his mind. Some of the stuff he, he says on those forums is so out to lunch that it it really boggles the mind. And, and one of the things he states is that we have technology that can go to any planet in the solar system, that we have actually visited every planet in the solar system, that we have lunar bases. But then, you know, you, you read this stuff and you realize he also says that there's enough of an atmosphere on the moon for you to get out and take a walk, which is just apps. I mean, I, re- I read yeah. that. And to me, it's just the worst nonsense I've ever read. So, I mean... What do you think is that secret space program? What does it consist of? If it's secret, I don't know. But I met Edgar Mitchell, the sixth man on the moon, the astronaut, several years ago, mm-hmm. and had the opportunity to visit with him one-on-one. And the reason I wanted to meet him was because I had heard that he knew about Roswell. And I point-blank asked him about Roswell. And he said, Dennis, all I can tell you is that, yes, it did happen. I have sources that have told me they were involved, and it did happen. And then he also told me that we have two governments. This is Edgar Mitchell, the astronaut. And I said, okay, explain that to me. He said, well, we have the elected government and we have black government. I said, well, who's in this black government? He said, I can't tell you names, but he said they exist and they pull the strings. I said, who did they answer to? He said, they don't. I said, they have to answer to somebody. He said, no. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with the MJ-12 documents from back in the 40s with Truman. Oh, yeah. Majestic 12. I believe today there is a group in the United States 
similar to Majestic 12. All those guys have long, long gone. Okay, so you accept the MJ-12 documents as being real. I just wanted to verify that. No, but what I am saying is that I believe there is a group that is in charge of things, and I'll name two names that I, I would wager are, on, are in that group, and that's Henry Kissinger and George Bush Sr. They would be members of any new group that is this black project or black world that Mitchell talked about. He didn't tell me that those names, but those are two that I have reason to believe would be involved in it. They wouldn't let his son join at all. No. <laughs> You are about to enter another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a sinister land of secret rites, passwords, initiations, and handshakes, where the truth remains hidden and history is controlled by an elite group of mysterious men. Imagine, if you will, that I'm holding a book in my hands that explains this secret history and that the name of this book is Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Here is described centuries of dark dealing, lies, murder, mayhem, and cover-ups in the pursuit of unimaginable money and power. My name is Brad Steiger, and the stories you are about to read may have actually happened at the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. You are in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We are talking to the truth secret Roswell himself, Dennis Balthaser. So we know, for example, that George H.W. Bush or Bush Sr. was involved with the CIA and everything. Mm-hmm. So I guess that makes sense. As, I would think so. Yeah. But that's obviously still speculation. We don't really know, do we? Right. I mean, if you look at George Bush Sr.'s history and the government, Clearly, this guy has been involved in some very dirty laundry, really dirty stuff. Colombian drug deals and and all kinds of things. But, you know, every president since Truman has tried to open up information about UFOs and failed. Most recently, of course, was was Clinton. He, when he became president, wanted to know about the Kennedy assassination and UFOs. And he sent one of his aides, Hubble, around Washington looking for information. Came back to Clinton, said, I can't find anything. Our own deceased congressman, uh, Schiff, went to the GAO and, and got a report from them. And all the records of Roswell Army Airfield between 45 and 49 were destroyed by somebody. This is the atomic bomb group. They say they, the records were destroyed. I don't believe that. There's been several presidents. Carter was one that had a sighting and made a report to MUFON. Reagan probably came as close as anyone. He was someone that had several sightings and, and had a discussion or two with uh, Gorbachev about the possibility of aliens. Even went public at the United Nations on videotape saying that we needed something from outer space to bring us all together on Earth. Was told never to go public with information like that again. The President of the United States doesn't have the security clearance for one thing because he's a temporary employee. He's there eight years and can't be trusted. So wherever this is controlled, whoever this is controlled by, is above that. And my question is, who has given those few people the authority to withhold information? It's almost as if it's impossible to arrive at any real understanding of the government's knowledge or involvement. I have days like that, yes. 
Yeah. Now, given that that's the case, Dennis, and given that ultimately the only way to talk about the UFO phenomenon is from an individual point of view and an individual experience context, let me ask you this. I know that when you were on the show the last time, we started to talk about a little bit about your religious beliefs and how they relate to your research work. So mm-hmm. I, I want to just open that topic up for, for a moment. On the show, I, I've sort of made it my personal tagline, I don't want to believe anything I want to know and understand. Religion, clearly to me, is a realm of personal belief you know you can't you can't hold something out from a religious belief to somebody and say look this is definitive proof that my belief system is an absolute universal truth how do you then reconcile the idea of belief with knowledge-based research where do the two intersect and where do they diverge i was a christian before i became a ufo researcher and i'm sure i'll be a christian after i quit doing this my bottom line is if and it's strictly faith based Mm -hmm. on personal decisions my bottom line is is that if you believe in god and you believe god created everything then everything means everything includes the possibility of life elsewhere because the bible does not specify anywhere that we're the only thing. It says heavens, plural. That gives me what I need to continue. I believe in prayer. I've had personal experiences with prayer where things have changed, perhaps not because of prayer, but I will believe that prayer has something to do with it. One of my biggest supporters is the music minister at First Baptist Church where I attend here in Roswell. They have monthly lectures where they bring people in to do presentations for the the senior luncheon once a month. They average 22 to 24 people per activity. I've done three lectures there. My first one had 85 people. The second and third one I had in the 70s. These were people from the church and from the community who are Christians who listen to me and respect what I do because of my honesty and because of the way I present it. I will not push this down anybody's throat and say ETs exist, bottom line. I don't know that. Based on the research that I and several others have done, there's a strong indication that we have been visited and are being visited by someone or something from somewhere else. You mentioned coming from within the earth. The Hopi Indians in Arizona believe that they came out of the earth at Flagstaff, Arizona. So this is not new. The thing with the water, that that has come up many times. There's been a lot of reports of vehicles being seen either coming out or going into the water. And then we get in dimensions, which gets out of my realm a little bit, and that's a possibility, too. Will we get an answer? I don't know. I really don't. Here's a question, then. So let's say, and I'm, I'm just, we're just, this is all obviously hypothetical, but let's say that one day in our lifetimes, a vehicle lands publicly. Beings mm-hmm. come out of that vehicle, prove to us that, indeed, they are from another planet, prove to us that they are technologically superior, maybe by half a million years. And again, I, I think this is pretty unlikely, but let's say for a moment this happened. And then you, Dennis, are now given an interview with these creatures. And you sit down in front of them. You want to know, one of the first questions out of your mouth is, what do you creatures believe in as far as God goes? Mm-hmm. And the creatures look at you and, and they say, we've been to the realm of what you call the spiritual plane and it's another manifestation of reality and what you beings call, you beings as in us, 
they say to you, what you beings call God is not at all what you think it is. It's not God as you, as you believe it to be. How do you then respond to those beings? Essentially, these beings say to you, God is not what you think it is. How does that affect your trust of them being a credible source of information, or does it? Well, that's, that's deep. That's good. There, there's no, we don't ask the easy questions on the paragraph. No, you, no, no, you guys are good. If the government would come clean and, and tell us what happened in Roswell or at other locations where there have been crashes or other sightings or whatever, yeah. if the government came clean with that, I'll, I'll go fishing. I don't need the frustration or the expense <laughs> to do this, and I'd be happy to give it up and, and admit that I was wrong. With uh, the religious end of it, if they confronted me and, and had proof that what they're saying is true, right. I'd have to look at it. I really would have to look at it because we were all raised in boxes, you know, by things our parents and told us and our, our teachers or pastors, whoever, and most people have believed that and, and are satisfied with that. And and I've kind of come out of the box a little bit. And when you get out of the box, it's fascinating. But until my faith is proven wrong, and I'll be the first to admit the Bible is a book of many words written and interpreted many times. One of my areas of research is the pyramids, and I recently found that the Great Pyramid has evidence of salt water being both inside and outside the Great Pyramid at a pretty good level above the, the surface, which would indicate that the pyramids were there when the flood took place, which is referred to in the Bible. This takes the, the building of the pyramids back many, many years more than Egyptologists would have us believe. You know, that starts almost another discussion, but I'm, thank you so much, Dennis Balthaser, the truth secret Roswell, for joining us this week on the Paracast. Let's do it again. Thanks, Dennis. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.